there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guests are my wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, to talk about the coronavirus and the MLS's back tournament. And then Sam Stasekel of The Athletic to talk more MLS. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Jordan Gardner, and Sarah Gordon, and many others along with them. So check those interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Sam Stasekel on soon, but let's start with a few good minutes with Dr. Celine Gounder. She's a CNN medical analyst and the host of the podcast Epidemic. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey. Um, let's start. We're recording on Wednesday afternoon. The MLS's back tournament starts Wednesday night in the Orlando bubble. We've already had one team, Dallas, withdrawn from the tournament after arriving with several COVID positives. Another team, Nashville, had its game postponed after several positives. So far, at least, there have not been any COVID positives that were acquired inside the bubble so far. As an infectious disease expert, are you concerned about whether MLS should be playing this tournament right now? Well, I think you've got a couple things. One, how airtight is the bubble? So can MLS truly enforce that their players don't go out into the community, whether it's to a local restaurant or to maybe hook up for a date? <laughs> you know, and so I think that's a, a real question because it, given the amount of transmission that you have in Florida right now, any exposure to the general community would be a risk for bringing COVID back into the bubble. Now, in addition, you do have people working inside the bubble who are part of the community. So hotel staff, restaurant staff, and so on. And, and not, not all staff actually are going to be inside the bubble the whole time. Well, and then that presents a risk for introduction of COVID into the bubble. So even if you're screening players and coaches um, for COVID, there are other people involved who could present a risk to everyone else. Also keep in mind, there was not a long quarantine period when players arrived at the bubble, um, I think on the order of a day. Uh, what would That's you recommend? That's not a quarantine. <laughs> One day is not a quarantine. One day is like waiting for test results for initial, you know, testing screening that was done when they probably first got there. What should it have been? Well, if you're going to do a quarantine, you're talking about 14 days. So that's how long it can take from the time that you're exposed and infected until you develop symptoms. So if you really wanted to be absolutely safe in a situation like this, everyone inside the bubble should first be quarantined for 14 days, you know, including testing everybody. Um, and then at the end of 14 days, if you have no new cases, you could be pretty sure that everybody inside the bubble is COVID free and proceed from there. Uh, yeah, it's it's worth pointing out that the original plan from MLS was for a longer stay for teams in Orlando in the bubble, a longer quarantine period, but the players union actually negotiated that down so that it wouldn't be as long of a stay, also less of a quarantine. Uh, meanwhile, the NWSL Women's League is playing its bubble tournament in Utah right now. One team, Orlando, withdrew due to COVID positives and didn't even travel there. But the teams that are there have not had any positive tests so far. MLS chose to stage its bubble tournament in Orlando, as did the NBA. Was choosing Orlando unwise, in your opinion, given, given the rise in cases there? How do you compare that to the choice of Salt Lake City 
by the women's league. Well, why would you travel to a hot zone to stage a tournament? Um, it, even if you're trying to contain everybody in this secure bubble, I mean, it would have been like saying one of the African countries during the Ebola epidemic, let's go to Liberia and yes, we'll be in a bubble. We'll be fine though. I mean, it's, it's kind of silly. So if you're going to choose a place uh, for this kind of tournament, you should do it in a place where you don't have much in the way, relatively speaking, in terms of community transmission. So Florida, to me, is a really perplexing choice. Just in general right now, the U.S. is setting records for the number of new cases each day. But some people point out that deaths are not increasing at that same rate as cases are right now, that it's younger people who tend to be getting this than before. Do you expect that deaths will increase again before long in the U.S.? So a couple things here. One, it takes time from the time that you're exposed and infected until you develop symptoms. That can take up to 14 days. As soon as somebody develops symptoms does not mean they're going to go seek medical care. So that can take another few days. On average, from the time people hit the hospital until they get worse and need to be on a ventilator in the ICU takes another week. And then it might be another couple of weeks before they die. So you're talking about at least a month, really, from the time of exposure, minimum a month, before you start to see death. So that's why we call it a lagging indicator. Well, do you expect the death rate to go down if it's just young people? Well, yes, you have young people who are predominantly driving transmission right now, but it's also important to remember a couple things. One, young people, especially in the South, have high rates of obesity and high blood pressure and diabetes, which are risk factors for having severe COVID disease. So just because they're young doesn't mean they're not going to have severe disease. And secondly, you have ripple effects. So yes, it may be transmission among the 20s and 30s right now, but they are going to be in contact with other members of the community. So you are going to see ripples of infection going out from the 20 to 30 year old age group to their parents, their grandparents, and other older members of the community. Dr. Celine Gounder hosts the Epidemic Podcast, which you should definitely check out. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Now, my interview with Sam Stayskull. Our guest now is Sam Stayskull, who does a terrific job covering soccer for The Athletic. He also co-hosts the Allocation Disorder podcast about MLS with Paul Tenorio, which you should definitely check out. Sam, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Grant. Excited to be here. I uh, hope everything's going well with you. Yeah, doing okay. How are things with you? Uh, obviously, so much going on in the world. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a busy few months, to say the least. But, um, you know, at the same time, kind of excited for games to get back. Kind of feeling a little weird about it as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, doing well, all things considered. I, I certainly can't complain. Good. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. The MLS is back. Bubble tournament is starting in Orlando on Wednesday night with Orlando and Miami playing. It was supposed to be a doubleheader with Nashville and Chicago playing the late game, but Nashville's positive COVID tests have caused that game to be postponed. We've already seen Dallas withdrawn from the tournament due to COVID positives. As someone who covers MLS as closely as anybody, how are you feeling about this tournament? Yeah, strange, I think. Um, a little, uh, you know, almost a little dirty. You know, I wrote a column on this this morning on Wednesday morning, and and that was the word I used in that. And like MLS, to to give them credit, is doing everything they can to create a safe environment. 
right? Um, the players and, and staff that are in the bubble that I've spoken to feel relatively calm about what's going on day to day. And they're saying they're mostly staying in the rooms and they feel good about the regular testing um, and all of that stuff. But at the same time, they all understand that this is largely outside of their control. And this virus has been brought in by teams like Dallas and Nashville. Um, and in theory, because of the incubation period and all that, all that other stuff that I'm sure you spoke about earlier on the show, um, it could be passed from team to team at some point without anyone knowing ahead of time. And so that's a real possibility. Um, and while MLS is doing everything it can to deal with those circumstances, part of which they designed, right? Um, you know, that that's a risk that they're taking. And that's a scary thing considering the players don't know how this disease will affect them in the short term, um, nor in the long term um, with, you know, things like lung capacity and lung health and damage and all of that stuff. So um, there's anxiety over it. Right. And I think when, you know, these games get going, um, obviously, you know, the first one, as you mentioned tonight with Miami and Orlando, it's going to be good to see soccer again. Right. Domestically uh, on yeah. the men's side here. But but it's also going to feel kind of strange. Like, is this really worth it? Is this really worth the risk? Um, and who's benefiting from it? And kind of what's the point of all of it is going to be very much um, in my head as I watch these games. So I'm talking to you. I'm in New York. You're in New York City as well. You are not down in Orlando. What was mm -hmm. the decision-making process? Because obviously the Athletic could have afforded to send you, um, but you decided <laughs> not to. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the media access there, um, you know, for non rights holders, I think ESPN has one reporter inside and Univision has one reporter inside. Those are, as far as I know, the only reporters allowed inside the bubble. So the other print reporters, and I think the Washington post and the LA times both have Steve Goff and Kevin Baxter respectively down there. Um, they're not allowed to go inside the bubble. Um, and all the interviews are done over zoom. Um, so it's not really all that much different than reporting on the tournament from New York or LA or London or the moon. Right. Um, so, so in terms of, you know, it was kind of rel a relatively easy decision. Um, it was just like, okay, do we want to spend all that money, put ourselves at risk? You know, we all have families on the athletic team too. So, you know, we're leaving them behind. Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't really much of a conversation. Had we been allowed in the bubble, um, it would have been a much different story. So how are you covering the tournament? Um, uh, over zoom, right. <laughs> um, you know, it, it'll be, uh, it'll be a lot of phone calls. It'll be a lot of zoom calls. It'll be a lot of text conversations as it has been here for what the last four months now. Um, and you know, it's nothing, nothing that we're not used to. Certainly. Um, we'll be doing kind of a daily newsletter type thing for every match day, um, with kind of one main, main, main take or, or story followed by a few different notes. Um, and we're kind of rotating that as, as a group on the, uh, in terms of the, the folks at the athletic who cover men's soccer on a day-to-day -day basis, the six of us. Um, so, so that I'm excited for that. The first one of that ran today, it was written by me. Um, and, and so that'll be fun. It'll be all over the place in terms of what we're writing about, but that, that'll be one thing. And then we'll have a bunch of other different stories throughout. So you and Paul Tenorio and actually other people at the athletic are extremely well plugged in, uh, around MLS. You've done an amazing job building that over the last couple of years. Um, what is your sense? I have kind of this question, like for MLS players right now, because MLS is approaching its bubble tournament differently than the NWSL has with its, where NWSL said to their players, 
you're still going to get paid even if you decide not to come uh, due to COVID. Whereas MLS has had some like uh, exceptions, right? Where if a player decides not to come, uh, if his wife's about to give birth, like Carlos Vela or like all that, that um, they'll allow that. But in terms of other players who who decided not to come, are they not getting paid? And, are, and for the players who are in the bubble in Orlando, if they were given the option to still get paid and not come, how many do you, what percentage do you think would have stayed home? Oh man. So I'll take the first question first. As far as I know, um, no one that wasn't exempt declined to go. So every, um, if, if the people that aren't going like Vela or Jonathan Dos Santos, who had surgery, um, just before the galaxy left, um, you know, they're either injured or they have another reason that they were given permission, um, for missing the tournament for, as far as I know, no one is skipping the tournament that wasn't given permission. So, and if you received permission, then you receive your, your paycheck. Um, you know, I, what I was told, geez, a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago now was that if someone skipped without permission, there would be severe penalties in terms of pay. I wasn't given a, a percentage or anything like that in terms of a cut, but it was sort of understood that, you know, you wouldn't be uh, you wouldn't be getting close to your full salary. Um, in terms of the second question, um, how many would not have gone? I mean, impossible to say, but it would have been significant, right? Like there are plenty of guys that I've spoken to down there that are like, you know, I don't feel great about this. And and to be fair, the players agreed to this, right? As a union, they agreed to it. The circumstances looked a lot different in Florida when they did agree to it, um, and that's something that I've heard is like, you know. Had we known that it would be this bad in Orlando and this bad around the country, um, we probably wouldn't have wouldn't have signed off on it um, when we did, which now was a little over or almost exactly a month ago. From a pure soccer perspective, what are some of the things you're most looking forward to seeing in this MLS tournament? Yeah, so I think it's going to be weird and and wacky on the field, right? It's obviously less than ideal circumstances, but I think that could lead to some fun soccer. Um, you know, MLS already has that kind of uh, bizarreness baked in. You see a lot of crazy things happen on the, on the field in terms of moments of brilliance mixed of mixed with moments of you know not so much brilliance. Um, <laughs> but so I'm looking forward to a little bit of uh, of chaos in that way. Um, one of the things I'm looking for as well is is young players. And if they're going to emerge, and if so, who emerges? Um, because I think more will be given a chance than in the course of a normal regular season. So, and I'm talking about homegrowns and domestics, and I'm talking about international ones as well. You know, the nature of this tournament, um, relatively quick turnarounds, the heat of Orlando, the fact that these players are not match fit right now is going to necessitate these coaches leaning on depth. And they all have five subs to play with. So I anticipate some more young players given give, are going to be given a chance than than would in in normal circumstances, and I think you know just playing a pure numbers game there will be a few that run with that chance, um, and and one actually I'm I'm looking at in particular and this is not a guy who's like, you know not getting a chance. Um, it was a huge transfer for LAFC, but Brian Rodriguez, um, you know a player with a ton of talent, um, but who hasn't really produced the end product yet in his matches with LAFC. Carlos Vela is out, right? So they don't have their main creator and their main goal scorer. Someone else is going to have to pick up the slack. I'm sure Diego Rossi will be involved in that, Adama Diamande as well. Um, but Rodriguez is very talented. And if he can start to kind of put it together in terms of goals and assists, um, you know, he could emerge as one of the biggest players in the league. 
So I'm not going to go group by group here. You know, you've got groups where three teams are going to advance out of the four. You could even have a fourth place team from group A because there's six yeah. teams in that group. There's there's currently three teams in another group. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of crazy, but just like in terms of looking at the tournament itself and the knockout rounds, which teams do you expect to see going deep into the tournament? And, and do you have a surprise pick to make a tournament run? So it, this is hard to say, right? Because of all the factors that I lined out about the heat and the depth. Um, but the other thing is who's going to care? Right. Like you might have teams, you might have teams down there like a Toronto FC, for instance, who had to show up late. Their first game has been postponed to two days after it was initially scheduled for because they showed up late. Um, You know, there's chatter from uh, a certain Twitter account about how their team doctor was pushing for them to not go. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, that account has been right before. (laughs) So, uh you know, and they're, they don't have anything to prove. They've been in a ton of finals over the last three, four years. It's a veteran group. Are they going to say, you know what, let's get down to Orlando. Let's get our legs underneath us and let's get out of here healthy. Um, or are they going to really go for it? Right. And that's going to really inform, I think, who does well in this thing. Um, I picked LAFC to win even without Vela. Um, I think they have a really talented squad and I think they're going to come to play. Um, they're also pretty young with their depth, which will help um, in the heat and with the quick turnarounds. Um, you know, but one team that I think might be flying a little bit under the radar that I've been talking about this entire time is Colorado. Um, you know, you talk about that first factor, how much are they going to care? Right? Well, the Rapids have something to prove. They've been atrocious basically for almost every single year since they won MLS cup in 2010. Um, you know, but they, they had a really good run in the second half of last year. They're familiar with their their coach, Robin Frazier, who coached them for the last 10 or so games last season. They have a pretty young squad as well. They have some talented players. Um, and and like I said, they're they're gonna go out there with something to prove. Um, and so I, I would not I would not be surprised to see the Rapids do pretty well. Um, you know, they got the season off to a good start back in March, won their first two games. So uh, that's my that's my dark horse pick, so to speak. It is interesting. I went on a gambling show the other day. I know it's getting more and more sort of out there um, these days, but I, Colorado was a team that uh, that I said had had real value. Yeah, good value, yeah. Yeah, in terms of, you know, comparing it to the, the gambling lines. Philadelphia was another team that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think um, – could potentially do better than the than the odds makers are are saying right now but you're right though like it's it's really hard to know how motivated and incentivized teams and players are going to be um you know what's at stake here uh there's a CONCACAF Champions League berth on the line uh for the winner uh it's a million a million dollar prize yeah I think 1.1 total um, but we don't know how that's distributed even. We don't know if that's winner take all. I don't think it's going to be. So, you know, who knows? Um, so, and, and are they still now with Dallas not being in the tournament, are they still going to have the first three games go for the, the league standings? Uh, yeah, as far as I know. I mean, we haven't heard otherwise. They, they did say that they're going to figure out a plan for Dallas and being out of the tournament and what's going to happen with their group, um, which was is Seattle, San Jose, and Vancouver. Maybe they just keep it at three teams and 
you know, the game that they were going to play against Dallas is a forfeit win. I don't, I don't know how that's going to work. Um, I don't know if the league quite knows yet, but they got to figure that out soon. Um, so we'll see on that front. I mean, if Nashville has to pull out and they've had to run a positive test as well, then, then that would mess with things too. Um, so, so we'll see. I, I, I do think that this is going to count towards the regular season. And then the idea as I'm sure, you know, we were, we were going to talk about, so I'll just skip ahead and get right to it. The idea is, is to go back into home markets and resume regular season play after this tournament ends. Um, so, you know, you'll take those three games, put them in the standings and go from there with Eastern conference teams playing Eastern conference teams and Western conference teams playing Western conference teams. Um, and all, all obviously dependent on whether the, the virus can get better in parts around the country. Cause right now it's, it's not doing well, uh, in the U S um, I want to talk a little bit about non-tournament stuff with you here because uh, we have a lot of list, a lot of listeners who, who read your work, uh, see what the athletic has done to invest in its soccer coverage. And could you just sort of describe what your path has been like career wise to, (laughs) to get to this point? Yeah. So it's been a little interesting. I uh, started out when I was in college, actually covering the Chicago fire. Uh, first for our friend Ivis Galarsip's website, I think for a total of three whole weeks, and then transitioned to another outlet <laughs> um, that was allowing me to write every day. And so I said, sure, I'll write every day. Um, after that first season, which was 2009, the Fire made the, the Eastern Conference Final and lost to RSL in penalty kicks. RSL was in the Eastern Conference Final. Yep, you heard that. I didn't misspeak there. <laughs> fun, old, fun old days of MLS. Um I switched to MLSsoccer.com, the league website, in 2010 and did that for a couple of years. Um, and then uh, I think Grant, I think we actually met um, after I had quit MLSsoccer.com. I was interning at SI.com. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Ancient history now. Um, but I think we met in the New York office there briefly. And then I was yep. graduating college after that. And, uh, you know, I actually took a job. I accepted a job offer like in the business world. I wasn't going to be writing. I wasn't going to be doing soccer. And I was at peace with that. Um, and then an opportunity came up, um, for me to go work in public relations for Real Salt Lake. Um, and I decided to kind of take a leap of faith and stay in the game and go do that. And so I lived out in Utah for a couple of years and, uh, then life circumstances had me leave that job. My girlfriend and I, who are now married, now my wife, uh, we were doing long distance. Um, and she got a job in, in North Carolina in Durham and it was sort of time to stop doing long distance. (laughs) So, so I followed her there and, uh, you know, brief stint at an ad agency that did not go well, um, to say the least for me. Um, and then I got hooked back in with MLS soccer, um, and was freelancing for them, doing some editing work, uh, doing reporting, writing features, uh, doing anything I could. Um, I worked at a restaurant for three years there in North Carolina almost, um, while I was doing that. And then, you know, eventually they brought me on, on a kind of more regular basis, which was cool. And, um, got hired by the athletic April, 2019. So, and, and been there since. So it's been kind of a, an interesting journey for sure, but it's been fun and gotten to meet a lot of cool people and do a lot of cool things. So wouldn't trade it for anything. I think it's, pretty amazing and and laudable how you've you've you know sort of fought to, to want to do this and and like uh and certainly are, are doing extremely well with with the athletic i like i am curious like when you work for 
the league website, there's a lot of good stuff on the league website, but there's still some mm -hmm. things you can't write. Like, sure. How is how has that been for you to then go from there to a place where everything's fair game? Um, it's been interesting. You know, I, I think it was funny. Some of like my first week or two at the athletic, I wrote like three pieces that I could have never dreamed of writing at MLSsoccer.com. And what were they? Like, I'm curious. Ah, oh, man, I'm trying to remember. Um, I can't even, I think maybe one was about the revs and kind of what everything that was going on there. Cause I was living in Boston at the time. One was sort of about what's the long play for the league with all of this, like at some point expansion is going to end and this growth that is coming from expansion and almost expansion alone is going to go, go die with that. And, and, you know, the, the realities on the ground are going to matter. So what happens then? Um, and maybe there was one other, but yeah. So I remember getting some some text messages about that being like, you didn't waste any time, huh? <laughs> like, and I was like, well, I didn't really plan it like this. It just kind of worked out that way. But um, so yeah, it's definitely been interesting. I was actually joking around uh, this morning um, and no shade to MLSsoccer.com. Like the people there are great people and they gave me an opportunity for years to do something that no one else gave me an opportunity for. And I will forever be thankful for that. And I'm proud of the work that I was able to do there. And I'm proud of the work that other people did and do there. Um, so like, I'm not trying to bag on them in any way, shape or form. Um, but I did say, I was joking around with a colleague this morning and being like, you know, I'm pretty glad that I, I wasn't working for the league website through this pandemic and suspension because, you know, just the nature of it, like the articles that I was writing, I wouldn't have been able to write like, you know, and that's like, you know, of course you can't talk about CBA negotiations on the league website, right? Like that makes sense. I can't argue that, right? But I'm glad that I was able to have an outlet where uh, where I could write about it. Um, so, you know, definitely thankful for MLSsoccer.com and, and all the support that they gave me over the years. Um, but it's cool to work for an independent outlet too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So you and Paul Tenorio in particular have broken a lot of MLS news to the point that MLS commissioner Don Garber put out a letter to MLS yeah. teams threatening threatening fines of a million dollars for releasing inside information to reporters. And The Athletic was even mentioned by name, which is obviously a huge badge of honor for you guys. And kind of ironic yeah. as well that you guys had sources <laughs> give you the letter uh, yeah. and then you published it. What was that whole thing like from your perspective? I mean, it was a, like, I, I do wonder like on things like that and Grant, I'm sure you've been involved in things like that over the course of your career as well. But like on things like that, obviously to us as journalists, it's a huge deal. Right. But like, I, I do kind of try and take a step back in those and be like, does this matter to anyone else you know, outside of our own little worlds? Um, and maybe, maybe not. It depends on the person. Right. Um, but it was definitely a little surreal. Like I would be lying if I said it didn't make me laugh when I heard about it and saw it. Um, but I get it too, from the league standpoint, like the commissioner had asked his, his people, the GMs, the teams, the owners, the players, everyone to not leak. And he'd been doing it for months and they kept leaking and he got mad about it. And like, I get it. It's like, all right, fine. You thought I was playing like, no, now you're grounded. Like, you know, <laughs> like that's kind of how it worked. Like would I have mentioned an outlet in that memo that I sent around to the league? No, I wouldn't have because by doing that, you're sort of guaranteeing that that outlet is going to be sent that memo. But I get why he was upset. You know, he's trying to navigate through these sensitive negotiations um, in a time that's super stressful. 
and people keep leaking in a way that he feels is harmful to to his purposes and the league's purposes and so he got upset about that and that's reasonable um i think i i would i would hope and i think that he knows and i think i know the pr staff knows that we're just doing our job as reporters you know like and and while i can understand why that's upsetting i hope they don't take it personally you know <laughs> well i mean clearly the athletic has made a big investment covering soccer including mls uh in in the u.s game like maybe this is also the benefit of working for a subscription site uh, where you're incentivized to pursue quality instead of just clicks. But like, yeah. like, have you found that the demand is there among your subscribers for all the nitty gritty on MLS? Yeah. And honestly, Grant, I found that at MLSsoccer.com. Like, I re- I'll never forget this. Like, there was, it was one of the first ever TAM for GAM trades. Like, I think it was, I think it was DC and Toronto and like someone traded, someone traded 300 in in one or the other. And someone sent back 225. And I was like, I was like, well, I know why this happened. Like, why don't I just like write a quick thing about it, explaining it, you know? And I wrote it and I started like, and this wasn't something that was really happening to me at the time, but I started getting texts from people around the league being like, thank you for writing this. Like people don't understand this because it's complicated and like, you know, acronyms and you can just be like, what, what's going on? Um, but thank you for writing this. And and the response that I got on like Twitter from fans, it was like, it was similar. It was like, thank you for writing this. We want to know this information, right? And there's not really an outlet for it. And so that's sort of informed a lot of my reporting over the years, that that whole idea of people want to know this stuff, right? There are avid fans of the out there of MLS, just like there are of the NBA or the NFL or MLB, where all this stuff is, is gone into in great detail all the time by different reporters. Um, and so I think you can provide the same sort of service. Is the audience as big as it is in those other leagues? No, of course not, right? Like, that's no secret. Um, but they care just as much, right? Uh, maybe even more. Um, so, so yeah, there is an audience for that nitty gritty. And then one thing that I've been really, uh, surprised isn't the right word, but kind of, uh, maybe impressed. I don't know. One thing that's really stood out to me here recently, um, and I hope I'm not giving away too much, but the NWSL coverage, all of it, Meg Lenahan, who does a great job for us, um, her stories. And then, you know, as the challenge cup has gotten underway, she's gotten some help out from, people on the soccer team and people outside of the soccer team. You know, Marcus Thompson wrote a piece recently about about uh, NWSL goings on. And all of those pieces, every single one of them, do great numbers in terms of subscriptions and number of views and all of that stuff. And that's really interesting to me because not all of our MLS pieces do the same, right? Um, but NWSL, there's a real appetite for that. And I think that's so cool because Meg is really demonstrating and proving the concept that people care about women's sports in a way that like Paul and I and all our other colleagues are trying to do with, with MLS. Um, and that's been really encouraging and cool to see over these last few weeks. Yeah. I mean, without getting too much into my own personal situation at my previous employer, I would say this, (laughs) I come out of that situation feeling more than ever that good quality soccer coverage needs to be for a subscription type service or for a place that is like maybe like an espn in their website that is so invested in in the sport and just has a ton of of scale someone that's going to be incentivized to do it 
Yeah, you need to be incentivized to do quality. And if you're just based on clicks and, and, and ads, I yeah. think that's tough. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a broader discussion kind of with media in general, too. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that that's for a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do talk about, like, basically your entire podcast with Paul Tenorio, Allocation Disorder, is a really deep dive into MLS rules. Like, not always, right. but... A lot of it is. Well, that was and, that was the idea, and then the shutdown happened. <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoy listening to it, and you guys clearly know your stuff. There's so like it's it does seem like there's a lot of arcane rules in in MLS and in ways to build rosters. Do you here? Here's a question for you. Like, do you think one of you guys could become a GM based on what you know in this league and do better than a lot of the GMs out there? Oh man, that's so hard to say because there are so many different factors that every GM has to deal with, right? It's not as easy as saying, oh, that's a good player or, oh, I know that <laughs> mechanism, right? And like, let me see if how I can finesse that. It's like, well, no, you have to deal with your boss who's the owner or the president or maybe both and your budget and a million other different internal factors that no one ever sees and no one ever talks about, right? Um, if you're asking the question, do I think that myself or Paul know and understand MLS rules better than certain GMs in the league? Yes, 100%. Um, I can say that unequivocally. Um, and that's not necessarily their fault. Some of these guys are brand new, right? Like I think about like some of these guys, we've seen a lot of them be hired from abroad in the last year or two, right? So when they're just coming on, there's a learning curve. They're not familiar with that. I've been in this for years, you know? Like I know it in a way that like I would like to think, and this sounds cocky, but whatever, like in a way that someone who's been in it for years as a GM would know it, right? Because that's what I think about all day too, in a lot of different ways. So yeah, I think I know the MLS rules better than some of the GMs. I don't think that's really any fault of their own. Um, could I be better than them? I don't know. Like, of course, <laughs> we all like to think that, right? I want to see somebody get the chance at some point. I mean, it would be fun, right? Like, that's the dream. Like, if we're being honest, like, that's the dream of all of us in a lot of different ways. Like, we're all we're all armchair quarterbacking, playing fantasy, playing fantasy teams or whatever. Like, you know, we, who wouldn't love that opportunity? <laughs> so in terms of how you approach covering MLS as a league, how would you describe mm -hmm. that approach, that sort of strategy that, that, that you have at The Athletic as a whole, but also you personally? Yeah, so I think at the athletic as a whole, the you know we don't have a full roster of twenty six reporters for all twenty six teams, right? There's six of us, so we kind of have to pick and choose where we're gonna go because we just don't have enough bodies to cover every single story on every single team, right? Um, but I think we do a pretty good job of being able to maintain the the high level stuff for most clubs and then go deep when we need to. And then we have we have guys who are really plugged in at certain teams. So Matt Pence in Seattle, super plugged in with the Sounders, Felipe Cardenas in Atlanta, same with Atlanta, Pablo in DC, Jeff in Minnesota, same thing, right? Um, so, you know, it's trying to grow that and trying to be a little bit more intentional about like, okay, Sam, you're responsible for teams X, Y, and Z. And like, that doesn't mean you have to write about them every week, but you got to pay attention and know what's going on. And when things pop off, you can be knowledgeable and write about it right away. Right. So I think we're trying to do more of that this year. Um, for me personally, I say this kind of often, I, I think of MLS as kind of this puzzle piece that's or, uh, this puzzle where kind of the pieces are constantly changing. <laughs> um, 
you know, and, and they're trying to figure out how to best grow American soccer and Canadian soccer on the professional level. Um, and they're messing around and they're changing the rules and they're doing so in a way that ideally leads to a bigger, um, more financially robust, um, better league, right? And they're working within a set of confines, um, some of which don't change, some of which can. <laughs> um, and kind of the strategy behind that and um, kind of how it works with different owners and how it works with different employees at the league and who's got what agenda and who's got the power to push their agenda. All of that is fascinating to me. You know, it's kind of like a, it's almost like a political game, right? It's almost like a Game of Thrones type thing. Um, but the end goal isn't, all right, like who's in charge? The end goal is how do we best grow this sport? Or at least that's what the end goal should be anyway. And that's something that I care about. And I think anyone covering soccer in this region really cares about. And that to me is so fascinating because it's in its adolescence. It's not fully formed. So all of it changes. And I think, and Grant, like you probably know this better than anyone else. The things that we talk about and the things that we write about, you know, that gets play in these circles of power, right? And that can affect decision-making. And that's kind of cool, right? That strokes my ego a little bit, right? Um, but it's kind of cool to be part of, of the overall ecosystem of how do you like push this sport forward and, and make, it, um, make it bigger and make it where we all want it to be in this country. So you and your wife actually moved to New York City fairly recently from the Boston yeah. area. How, <laughs> yeah, right how before the that... pandemic started. Yeah, seriously. Uh, how has that changed what you do or has it changed what you do in your job? Uh, I mean, I think we were literally here for a month before everything shut down. So no, it hasn't really changed much. <laughs> I still work from home and still am on the phone all day. Uh, in that month, you know, I, I, I went to an NYCFC Champions League game. I went to an MLS league event at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel uh, in, right. in Manhattan. Um, so, you know, I'm able to do a few more of those things, but those things don't exist right now. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so it hasn't changed too much. So, I mean, like, where do you see MLS in, in five to 10 years? Oh man. And where do you see, and where do you see media coverage of, of MLS at that time? Is it, do you think it'll be a lot different? Oh, um, no, I don't. Um, I think it'll grow incrementally, but I think it'll be slowly and steadily just like MLS as a whole, right? That's been the motto the whole time. I think so much depends on the next TV deal so much. Um, and that comes up, the current one expires after the 2022 season. Um, the American broadcasters, Fox and ESPN and Univision pay a total, I can never remember if it's 80 or 90 million a year. I think it's 90 million a year, um, to the league, which when you divide by, you know, at the end of the 2022 season, that's 30 teams in MLS. Um, when you divide by that, that's 3 million per team. That's peanuts in, in the sports world. It's nothing. Um, and for MLS to grow in the way it says it wants to, that has to increase dramatically. Um, the problem is, Grant, as you know, uh, MLS doesn't rate. About 250,000 people watched what was the average audience for English language broadcasts on national TV last year in the regular season. Uh, that's minuscule. It's so small. And I don't know how you goose the price up. Um, without getting dramatically better ratings. And I don't know how you get dramatically better ratings in the next year and, what is it, two and a half years? Um, like, I don't think there's really a way to do that. So 
you know, maybe they package it in a certain way. I think that that, you know, this discussion is a big part of the reason of why this Orlando tournament's going forward, right? Like this is MLS throwing ESPN a bone and Disney a bone, right? It's giving them inventory. It's down there at a Disney owned property at the ESPN wild world of sports. Um, the, the resort is literally like inside Disney world. It's not owned by Disney, but affiliated the initial resort they were going to play at before the NBA took it is owned by Disney. <laughs> um, or, um, so that's, that's part of this and man, like that's the next big story. So like I'll, I'll race you on it, Grant, and we'll see who gets there first, but, um, I gotta get a job first, by the way, but yeah, hey, hey. I mean, <laughs> um, I'm sure that I'm sure that'll happen before too long, but, um, you know, like what were those discussions between Don Garber and Jimmy right. Pataro, the ESPN president, and maybe even Bob Iger, you know, who runs Disney? Like, what were those discussions? Were there any promises made, um, regarding that TV deal? I don't know. Um, but I'm very curious to, to try and find out. I can tell you that much. Yeah, definitely. And also too, with that next TV deal for MLS, are they going to have their rights bundled with us soccer's mm-hmm. rights for men's and women's national team games as they have been for quite a while in which was really us soccer throwing a big bone to MLS huge, uh, yeah. back in the day. And, and potentially if you're us soccer leaving money on the table, uh, just because maybe you could get do better on your own, you know. So right, uh, right. Some and big you don't decisions. Have to split it or anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I didn't even mention the twenty twenty six World Cup, right? And so that is viewed as like the big trampoline, right? That's like the the league was founded because of the ninety four World Cup, and the twenty twenty six World Cup will be the the vehicle, um, or is seen as the vehicle that to take the league to the next level, right? And so if you're going to be in position to jump to that next level in 2026, you're going to have to get a good TV deal in 2023. Sam Stasekel covers soccer for The Athletic. He also co-hosts the Allocation Disorder podcast with Paul Tenorio. You should definitely check all that out. Sam, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Grant. This was a blast. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Sam Stasekel and Dr. Celine Gounder, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm-hmm.